It's Thursday, December 3rd. We're finally in the home stretch of a year unprecedented and unparalleled in any of our lives. Stay patient, my friends. 2020 is almost over. And while I wouldn't dare tempt fate by believing that 2021 couldn't possibly be worse, the good Lord knows it has to be better. And it can be. No, seriously, it can. I believe that. I mean, it has been before. You might want to sit down to hear this. You know, there was a time not all that long ago when people who disagreed vehemently on issues of politics could sit down and discuss them without hating each other, without demonizing or insulting each other. Yes, really. It may be hard to remember, but in fact, that used to be the standard for TV news broadcasts, sharing the stage, giving equal time to all sides, discussing it, arguing about it on air, and then signing off and walking away as friends. Folks forget it, but even Sean Hannity, the reigning dean of right-wing media, got his start on Fox News as the equal co-host of Hannity and Combs, a show he shared for over a decade with a progressive partner, the late Alan Combs. CNN's Crossfire was the groundbreaker of the genre, equal representation between conservatives and progressives on its panel for almost a quarter of a century, debated issues and disagreed while still being respectful. But sometime in the mid-aughts, the tenor began to change. CNN canceled Crossfire and the equally civil debate program Capital Gang in 2005. Fox gave the entire hour to Hannity in 2008, and many would argue that civil discussion and honest, respectful debate got canceled around the same time. I'm Clay Aiken. This week, Politicon is especially thrilled to talk to one of our own, legendary newsman and commentator Al Hunt. Al has been one of the mainstays of civil debate on TV and radio throughout the past 40 years, most notably as a co-host and panelist of CNN's Capital Gang and Evans, Novak, Hunt, and Shield, two programs that each ran for 20 years on the then-highest-rated cable news network. He spent 35 years in the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal. And currently, you can hear him weekly on our sister Politicon podcast, Politics War Room with James Carville and Al Hunt, which, by the way, I highly recommend. But here on our show, I'll ask him, what the hell happened to political discourse in America? Is it the fault of the public, the politicians, the media? Will President-elect Biden be able to actually govern with such polarization? And how the heck are we going to get along? Where are you now, Al? I'm in Washington, uh, where I've been for the last nine months. <laughs> I know, right? We started doing this show with me flying to L.A. to do it with a panel, and we got through two weeks of that, and, <laughs> and then I've yeah. been in my house ever since then, <laughs> not doing anything else. Now, does, yeah. does Judy do um, the broadcast every she, night from home also? From, from about 25 feet from here, from our library. Uh, that's incredible. I mean— does she and, prefer it that way? Like, she's going to keep doing it that way? Well, that would be and, what I'd want to do. It started off out of necessity, and I think there, there are advantages and there are disadvantages. Uh, but, but it's what is. And it's, uh, you know, they do a good job of, uh, you know, there have been, I think, maybe one technological breakdown the whole time, which has been pretty good. How have, 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 do they measure ratings at PBS? I mean, did she, has they seen it, an uptick there or? Well, they certainly, I mean, they measure it very, they don't measure it the same way or as, um, uh, as religiously or uh, fully as the networks do, but they saw a clear uptick in audience. I mean, dramatic uptick when uh, Trump was elected. Oh, really? After yeah. the election? 
Yeah, I guess a little bit during and then really uh, during the administration. I mean, like a, you know, not not quite doubling, but awful close to it. Wow. Well, the reason I ask is because I am a have always been an avid, voracious consumer of of cable news, and sometime in March, right around the coronavirus, well, probably April, after a few weeks of it, I personally, and I've talked about that on this show a little bit, I personally just kind of got tired of cable news inundating me with so much information. And I looked at some of the broadcast networks and their ratings had gone up so high. And I thought, wait a second, I wonder if there's a, if there's an argument to be had for any of these broadcast networks, why they would ever need to say, ever tell me that coronavirus is fine and we can go out again. If the ratings for ABC goes up, go up by double, right? doesn't it benefit them more? And so I stopped watching all news and the only news I watch every night is PBS. I watch the news hour every night because I figure, you know, ratings aren't as important there as they are on some of these broadcast networks or cable networks. And do you think ratings have guided the way they talk about coronavirus or politics in general on any of these other channels? Yeah, no question. No question. I mean, I don't think it does at all on on uh, on Judy's show, but no question it does on CNN. It does on, I mean, you know, they've all carved out their niche. And, um, you know, I think they're going to suffer with, with Biden. They're gonna, I mean, I hate to say this because I'm so glad the guy's gone. Right. They're going to miss, <laughs> they're going to miss Trump. But is, I mean, I've never been one of those people personally who has bought into this, I mean, I'll call it a myth, my word, myth of liberal bias in media. But I have to say, I have seen a bias, and it's not, I don't know that it's political, but it's certainly been a bias about what the viewers seem to want. I mean, I watch MSNBC. I agree with most of the folks on MSNBC more than I do with the folks on Fox, that's for sure. But, you know, I wonder how much of it is speaking to the new, the stories that are being told are the ones that the viewers want to watch. And how much do you think that has affected the way we have become polarized? Well, I think it's, I think it took a polarized society and it just probably exacerbated it some, but I teach a course up at the university of Pennsylvania and uh, each semester, each spring semester, I give them an assignment to watch uh, a Fox show at night and an MSNBC show at night. And then uh, report back to me the next week. And they and they all kind of with glazed eyes say it's a different universe. It's not a different yeah. world. It's a different universe. Uh, and um, now that's at night. I think during the day, uh, certainly MS. I mean, Andrea Mitchell's as good as there is in the business. Right. But uh, but at night, it is it is just going for that niche. But is it is it really just? I mean, I agree with you. The night times are different because they are so opinion heavy. But even during the day, isn't there a, a bias in the way they produce the shows and the stories they pick? I mean, it's not subject, necessarily subject, that they're telling subject lies. selection. No right. subject selection. Clearly, yeah, clearly. I mean, I yeah. I had an argument with my uncle this this Thanksgiving. We have we have our own little tiny family bubble, so we don't see anybody outside of it, but we do get to get, we were able to get together because we've been all been pretty strict. And even as a, I mean, a hardcore Trump conservative, hardcore Trump conservative, he's followed the the COVID rules, thankfully. But so we were able to, and That's we got good. into an argument and he said, you know, he, he watches, he's abandoned Fox now. 
He's on to OANN and oh the other God. the other places because, you know, in, in his opinion, Fox has left <laughs> Trump and left the party. Um, but I think, you know, is it that he's being told untruths or is it that he's just not being told? Because I noticed in our conversation there were there were things like the uh, like judgments and rulings that were made by Trump judges, Trump-appointed federal judges that he had not heard a thing about. And he said, well, I need right. to check and see if that's true. And I think, well, you know, it's not necessarily that they've been lied to, but they've just very conveniently not been told certain things. Well, it's both. I mean, it really is both. And again, I think there's, all Fox is certainly not culpable. I mean, that election night, their election unit mm-hmm. is quite good. Right. And 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 yes, um, Trump went ballistic and Jared called Rupert Murdoch to complain about the fact that they called uh, uh, that they called Arizona. Guess what? Arizona voted for Biden. They were right. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, that wasn't done. That was done. Of course, that's when a, they lost my uncle too. So, <laughs> it, well, exactly. So, you know, your uncle's being told, "Look how left wing they are." They called Arizona for Biden, but then if you could sit down and talk to your uncle because we know he's a good guy and a reasonable guy, right. you could say, "Now, wait a minute, Unc. Look, who did it, who carried Arizona?" Who it was certified by the by the Republican governor. Uh, I mean, I, you know what what what's the issue here? They were right, but but you know you've talked to folks like him <laughs> before. When you go there, so many of them now believe that even folks like Doug Ducey are after Trump or trying to are are in the pocket of liberals. I mean, it's it's beyond. Has it not gotten beyond being able to kind of have a, a coherent, fact-based conversation with folks. They look at, there are some people, and listen, we could, I, I could complain about liberals in the same way, but in this moment, we're going to talk about the Trump people. Um, they look at Georgia, and it's not, it's not the, just the Democrats' fault. It's the Republican governor's fault for not being involved. It's the Republican secretary of state's fault for not being involved. And I say, gosh, this is, this is the equivalent of everyone denying Jesus Christ and you continuing to follow him despite, you know, it's like Trump isn't that, is he? Why is this personality cult been so successful? Do you have any idea? Well, he's he's been a terrible president, but he's good at it. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> okay, you got to explain that. <laughs> well, I mean, he basically, it's Joe McCarthy. Uh, it's Father Coughlin. It's Huey Long. It's uh, George Wallace. I mean, and he is one of the better of the demagogues. He says things over and over and over and over again. Uh, he never retracts. He never apologizes. He never explains. Uh, and it has worked for him for his whole life, and it's working now. I mean, if you say that there was there was you know fraudulent voting, dead people voted, uh, that the Democrats stashed away uh, hundreds of thousands of ballots, all that's demonstrably untrue. It's not right, just but, un- but exaggerate. But, but if you say it over and over again, and you have some microphones to pick up on that echo chamber, then there are people that want to believe it, and they do. Right, but Al Joe McCarthy was taken down by Edward Murrow, right? Well, I mean, he, he was taken down by Edward R. Murrow, and he was taken down by the Senate. But how long did he did he, did he reign? About four years. Yeah, but who could do that? I guess my question is that happened when Edward R. Murrow finally exposed him. It worked, and that doesn't seem to work here, does it? Well, there's there's a couple things. Edward R. Murrow was one of three networks back then. Right Uh, right now, uh, if if whoever the equivalent of Edward R. Murrow is today, 
uh, does that. Uh, they are going to go and 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 Fox and uh, uh, whatever network QAnon's on and uh, you know <laughs> Breitbart and uh, a number of others will say, you know, that's just totally. He made that stuff up. It's a lie. He's a left wing com simp who's out to get him. That didn't happen back then. But, you know, I, as to who's going to take him down, well, I think the voters did. And what remains to be seen is, will he still have that kind of clout? Because the reason he can't stand this, Clay, is, you know what Donald Trump is today? He's a loser. And he hates that. He hates that. And we'll see whether the rank and file stick with him, knowing after a while when it sinks in that he's a loser. Haven't there been times over the past four years that you or that many of us <laughs> expected the rank and, oh, this is going to be the thing that makes him lose. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And many times people have thought that was happening and it was wrong. Do you really think he's going to lose them now? Well, I'm not sure, but I will say you're absolutely right. I mean, when uh, when Jeffrey Goldberg wrote about the, you know, the awful things that he said about uh, American veterans and dead veterans and the earlier stuff he'd said about John McCain and, of course, going back to the campaign of, 16, the awful uh, uh, things he, he bragged about the way he uh, assaulted women. Uh, and then Bob Woodward's book about when he said in February, yeah, I knew more, but I didn't want to tell the people or, you know, I didn't want to, uh, you know, create panic. I thought all those would be devastating. You know what? They weren't. Uh, Why not? And because his base is so rock solid, uh, the one thing, the reason he lost the election is because he decided in the beginning, and he probably had no choice because it's who he is, uh, he decided in the beginning that he was going to absolutely fortify and double down on that base. And he wasn't going to reach out. And he hadn't reached out at all. And the problem for him is that base is 45 46%, and it didn't change. You know, maybe it went up to 48% one month when he was after he was uh, not impeached. And then it went down to maybe 42 during a particularly bad time for the COVID or the economy, but it basically stayed where it was. And that's where it ended up. And what what I don't know is, are those people who have considered him uh, their Moses, uh, what are they going to think when they find out that, A, he's he is a loser, he's out. Uh, will the media pay as much attention to him? I think not. They will in Georgia this weekend, but I don't think really they're going to in February and March and April. And don't forget, Clay, he's got enormous legal problems. But do they? Do you think that they're going to think he's a loser? I mean, don't don't the don't the folks who support him, the ones who love him, the ones who will continue to go to his rallies in Georgia, even though he won't be president, aren't they? Don't they just believe that he he's he won the election and it was stolen from him? Well, they there's certainly a large group of Trump supporters that believe that, uh, and it's you know I don't know what it is, but it's probably. 80, 90% of his supporters, I think that will diminish in time. I mean, after a while, it becomes so irrational that these aren't all a bunch of irrational people at all. Uh, I mean, go ahead. Well, uh, how do these legal problems that you mentioned, how do they, what do you hope or think will happen with those? Do you think that Joe Biden should suggest that his AG not really investigate them to leave it? Do you think he should tell him specific, him or her specifically to investigate it? What do you want to see happen? If it were left up to me, I would investigate him. I would have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think awful things have happened. 
Uh, I had dinner two years ago with a great Bill Ruckels house who passed away last year, who was the great hero of uh, the Saturday night massacre in 73 and acting FBI director. And he said, don't forget. He said, what you, he said, what you know is only the surface. There's a lot of stuff below the surface. Uh, and I think there is a lot of stuff below the surface, but I think in the real world, the real politic, Joe Biden is going to really send the word to his attorney general. We don't want to get, we don't get want to get ensnared in going back and looking at all this. However, Joe Biden can do that on the federal level. He has no authority on the state and local level. And the Manhattan district attorney, uh, within a matter of, you know, maybe days or weeks, there's going to be a big truck that's going to roll up before his accounting firm, and they're going to get every single document uh, from the Trump company. And if you believe that Donald Trump was a tough but very honest businessman, he has nothing to fear. If you believe he's a guy who cut every corner he could, legal or otherwise, I, I he's he's got some tough times ahead with that Manhattan district attorney. Listen, I don't disagree with that at all. I still wonder if Democrats have not figured out how to tap into those same people who uh, who support Trump right now and are not doing are not handling it poorly. I mean, yeah, I the agree. Russia investigation, the impeachment, they didn't work. It didn't change their minds. So if if the Manhattan district attorney uh, and there's a state there's a state trial in New York and it finds irrefutable, demonstrable evidence that some law was broken, <laughs> is it going to affect or change those folks' minds? And we haven't seen it work yet. Well, I don't know that it will, but he hasn't really been before a real jury yet, has he? Remember, he refused to even testify uh, uh, to Robert Mueller's committee. That was part of the, that was part of the impeachment count. Uh, that Ken Starr and Brett Kavanaugh and Lindsey Graham drew up against Bill Clinton in 1998, his refusal to fully cooperate with the special counsel. But uh, Mueller, for reasons justified or not, let Trump off the hook. So he hasn't testified under oath. Uh, and when he goes to trial, uh, he, he's gonna, he can, of course, take the fifth if he wants. But there's going to be documents. There's going to be lots of stuff out there. And look, if I'm Joe Biden, I'm not doing this. This is being done in Manhattan. Right, uh, right. And it's a legitimate inquiry. And the Supreme Court has ruled that it's a, the Republican Supreme Court has ruled it's a legitimate inquiry. But, so I don't know what will happen if he's convicted. If he's convicted, you know, it's going to cost him a bunch of money. And, and who knows? They may have to measure him for an orange jumpsuit. But I, I think it won't be done on the federal level. It will be done on the uh, on the New York level. Um, uh, and as much schadenfreude as many people will get <laughs> if he were in an orange jumpsuit, what does that end up doing to his base? Does that not give people like, pulling names out, Doug Collins, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, the ability to run for office with a political martyr? That they're def- uh, that they're defending. I mean, Trump's name has is, will presumably. I imagine he'll run. He'll say he's going to run so he can raise some money. But it will presumably not be on the ballot in twenty twenty four. If if he's under investigation, if he's at risk of going to jail, if he's in jail, does how does that affect his base's willingness to to turn out for a candidate they might not have turned out for had Trump's name not been. I don't think much. I think I don't think Trump's going to turn out people four years from now for other people. Uh, you know, I think almost I think the Republican Party is still 
absolutely Trump's party. Uh, I think that will become less so, but not, you know, he will still be a huge force. I would not look for any nominee in 2024 to disown Donald Trump. So it'll be a very delicate balancing act. But, you know, lots, as I say, lots more stuff is going to come out. And he has said and done things that are, um, how do I put it, Clay? How can I be charitable? Who cares? Uh, he, Just be yourself. <laughs> that are goddamn insane. <laughs> right? <laughs> Listen, I don't disagree with that, but I do. I mean, I, I, you spent time in North Carolina. You know what it's like down here. Um, it's right. a, you know, I, I look around at the, my family. I'm one of only two people in my family, um, even extended family, who voted for Joe Biden. Um, most of them are Do you vote in North Carolina, Clay? I do, yeah. Well, um, good. I hope you voted for Roy Cooper because my son worked for him. Well, I love me some Roy Cooper now. Um, All right. <laughs> I've said that good. many times. All right. All right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I look around at people who I know voted for Trump. Um, some, some voted for Trump and Cooper, by the way. That's why he won bigger. Yeah. But, but who yeah, voted yeah. for Trump or voted for Dan Forrest or whoever and who are still, as you said, and are good people. They're not racists. I agree. They're a little bit not informed, <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. being, I'm trying to be charitable myself, yeah, but yeah, they're yeah. good people. And I think about, okay, how is what the National Democrat Party is, to, what they're talking about, what they're doing, well, how that's is that a affecting problem. their vote? But let's also talk about the North Carolina Party. I mean, I think Roy Cooper uh, accepted. I think, I think one of the reasons that Roy Cooper has been so successful, he's won six times on a statewide ballot, is that Roy Cooper is clearly uh, a smart guy. Uh, he is a basic mainstream progressive, but he is not an elitist. He does not come across exactly. as an elitist, and he's not an elitist. And he and doesn't nationalize. Of, he doesn't nationalize his races either. Well, some races. I mean, for instance, let me give you a good example. North Carolina is one of twelve states that has not done Medicaid expansion. The people that are getting killed by that are the people in eastern North Carolina and western North Carolina. Those small counties, people who live below the poverty line, more white than black to be sure. Seven counties in North Carolina have lost uh, their community hospitals in the last five years. That's largely because of the lack of Medicaid expansion. Those people are getting hurt and Democrats have not, with the exception of Cooper, have not done an effective job of getting that across. And uh, I mean, it's, it's in their interest to have a Medicaid expansion. And when it's put to the voters of Oklahoma, of Missouri, two states that are demonstrably more conservative than North Carolina, they vote for it. So I think some you of won't it get is, me to disagree with you on those issues. But right. what I will point out, and I'll try to keep my producers from killing me about going too local with North Carolina on this, because I'll talk to you about that all day. But, oh, I love to go to North Carolina. <laughs> but did you go to college in North Carolina, Clay? I did my whole life. I've spent all but about. Five years in this. Where did you so. go to? Where did you? Where did you I went go to Charlotte. Charlotte? I went to Charlotte. Charlotte, good. I went to Wake Forest, so we uh, uh, we sometimes lose yes. to in basketball. So, but but you look at the rest of the state races in North Carolina, and you look at those yeah. down east counties. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to try to compare those to other states in the country too, where you're right. Those a lot of them white working class voters are being hurt by those economic, those health care issues, um, the tax 
the tax cuts that uh, the Trump era and the Bush era. They're being right. hurt by those things. But if you look at the state house and state senate races in this state, they still voted Republican, and Roy sure Cooper did. won his race. But every non-incumbent uh, Democrat, every other race where there was not an incumbent running, went Republican, including our our Supreme Court Chief Justice, which is yeah, very I, close. But these are these are people who nationalize the race, and they ran. These are p- folks who probably would have voted on issues like economic issues or healthcare issues, but. They didn't because those were not – they went to the polls to vote for Donald Trump. Robinson County showed up and has voted Democrat almost every time. Until um, last time and, and Until this, time, this right. last time and this time they were voted right. for Donald Trump. So right. what is it that Donald Trump is doing that, in my opinion as a Democrat, is making these folks vote against their issue, their own interests because whatever he's selling – is more valuable to them than the economic and uh, the economic issues that Democrats are selling. He plays the us versus them card. Really, he's incredibly shrewd the way he plays that. And you know what? If you're in Robinson County, if you're one of those tribal members down there, you are the us and the them are those people in Washington and maybe Raleigh who have never really cared about you. And what mm-hmm. Trump has told those people and convinced those people, I think it's totally phony, is I'm with you. We're against them. But you're absolutely right. It was not only down about the lieutenant governor's race stunned oh, me. God. Don't I mean, I mean, there that. was apparently, <laughs> I don't know the Democratic candidate, but apparently it was pretty good. Mike Bloomberg gave a lot of money. And the Republican candidate is a black Trumpite. Uh, I mean, it just, uh, and, 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 and openly, homo- openly homophobic and openly anti-Semitic right. <laughs> and, right. and right. doesn't apologize for it. I mean, we can and, get, trust me, we can talk about that forever. But No, these- but it goes to your point about, you know, playing the us versus them and what the tr- what Trump land, if you will, but has What done. are Democrats doing wrong? Because I get what Republicans are doing, but Rep- but Democrats must be doing something wrong that they can't overcome that? And what is it that they're doing wrong? Well, on a national level, it was things like defund the police. What? What? No, I'm sorry. I don't know any community that wants to serve without a police department. Reform the police, change the police, right. bar charcoal, uh, chokeholds, uh, you know, make sure officers who, uh, uh, you know, violate their duty uh, are punished. Yes. But defund the police? No. Right. Uh, and I agree with you on that. But President Obama this week actually came out and said pretty much the same thing you just said. This is not what we're people should be looking are looking to do, and that's not what they should say. And he got attacked by Ilhan Omar and Alexandria and AOC um, because they were upset that he was criticizing them. And and they got more support than I expected when they came out against. Uh, well, you know, but our they last still Democrat are president. a distinct minority. And what I look at is that is that two thousand that class of two thousand eighteen, and you, you know some of whom lost this time. But you look at all those Democrats who won back then: the Abigail Sp- uh, Spanbergers, the Colin Alrads, the Mikey Sherrills, the Jason Crows, and they all were in the Obama camp. Mm-hmm. They all were in the Biden camp. They all were in the Pelosi camp. They were not in the Omar camp. They were not in the AOC camp. And what those, you know, what the what the squad and the left does, they can win in districts that are overwhelmingly Democratic. I mean, they can and they have and they do and they beat incumbents sometimes there. They can't win in any district that determines which party will control the House. So I agree with you. I agree with you. And I know that. But 
they do they not do sort of the same thing that Donald Trump does when he claims a win, even though it wasn't overall a win for him? Aren't AOC and Ilhan Omar going to be able to say and celebrate Cory Bush's uh, victory over yeah. uh, Lacey Clay and mm. say, we are winning more seats. Isn't the squad going to expand this time? And how do, how do people like uh, Jim Clyburn and Abigail Spanberger convince them that their message isn't really working elsewhere when all they see is, yes, it must be because we're expanding the squad. Well, they say, all right, the squad, instead of being, you know, four or five, uh, will be eight or 10, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the trade-off is there are there are also are going to be 10 fewer Democratic House members. Or, put it another way, 10 more Republicans. Do you want four or five more squad members and lose and add 10 more Republicans? That's a bad trade-off. That you, listen, you're preaching well. to the choir, Al, but it's not that, working. But, but it's not working it's not. with them, and and it's not well, necessarily you know working work, on Twitter did, or on work in, in the media. But it it did work in 2018. It worked for an entire national election, and uh, you know they were you know certainly around then. But basically, they kept they kept on point, and they kept on what mattered to people. It was about. Uh, about the uh, protecting the ACA and protecting people with pre-existing conditions and making sure that people had uh, uh, you know a job. I mean, those were the issues. That's those the Democratic issues. Biden did a pretty darn good job of running on that this year and uh, really shunning the defund the police or ban fracking altogether in Pennsylvania. Uh, but you know, it didn't it didn't sink in down ballot because frankly, a lot of the message was dominated by by the squad. So let's look at it historically, and, and right. just in the last 15 years or so, the Tea Party came about and really hurt, arguably hurt Republicans. People like John Boehner kind of became a casualty to that Tea Party sentiment. Um, and I think myself, a lot, at least like some Democrats like me, thought, okay, well, the Tea Party is eventually going to hurt Republicans badly enough that they will have to recalibrate. And in some ways, they did. They did have to recalibrate a little bit. They had to moderate some, but, you know, I'll be damned. <laughs> they, right. they recalibrated it in a different, in a very interesting way. Is it going to take Democrats having to lose big in 22 or 24 or, God forbid, both in order for Democrats to see, wait a second, this isn't working for us running all the way to defund the police and some of these far more— I, I, I don't, I don't, are we going to have to see losses before we can fix our problems? Well, the interesting thing is, I don't know the answer. The interesting thing, though, is that the Republicans really didn't pay a price for the Tea Party, did they? Right. Well, uh, they, they, they recalibrated, but they recalibrated further right, right? <laughs> right, right. I mean, it just doesn't, I mean, I, I, um, uh, I, I really have, um, you know, I think Democrats could learn from the Tea Party, not from their policies, to be sure, but uh, from 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 the way they were able to go and slide off and look like they were recalibrating when they weren't. I don't think the Democratic Party is a left-wing party. It is a left-of-center party. That's mm-hmm. where the voters are. They, we had a bunch of primaries, and there were a number of candidates who ran in primary after primary left-of-center, Bernie Sanders, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, you know, uh, Castro, uh, uh, and uh, they were clearly uh, in the minority. Uh, I mean, Biden, I mean, Buttigieg, I consider more of a left of center than a left-wing candidate. 
uh, and uh, Klobuchar, and they did considerably better as a group, and Biden, of course, as an individual, than the left-wing Democrats like Sanders and Warren. Uh, same thing in 2018. Look at primaries. Most primaries, the really contested primaries, are in, in areas that, that are competitive districts are won not by the left, but by the mainstream progressives. That doesn't affect, you know, the districts like Cory Bush's or other districts in New York. Uh, and that's the message that people ought to understand. The squad gets too much attention. Whose fault is that? Media. And 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 why are they? Is that because they're? Is that because of the viewers seem to want that? Is that because they're lazy Some and they're just looking that. on Twitter for their no. sources? <laughs> right. Good question. Some of it is that, uh, and they make news. Look, uh, you know, if I go and I give a thoughtful speech. Uh, I'm a House member, and I give a thoughtful speech about how we really can change the formula for Medicaid uh, reimbursements. Uh, how much time do you think I'm going to get on CNN or MSNBC? Oh, none. But if I say basically we ought to throw Donald Trump in jail tomorrow and of then course. do away with the police department and have all social workers man those jails, how much time will I get? A lot. Right. But so that sounds to me like, I mean, some of the things that you've said sound to me like, this is just sort of what we're going to have to deal with. We can't fix it. I mean, it, it, the media is not going to all of a sudden decide to put on things that, that are boring <laughs> because they're, they're more reasonable. They're going to continue to do clickbait, and these websites are going to continue to only focus on the most salacious uh, stories so that they can get clicks. So is this well, just it, the new normal? It, it, it is a, a, that is the threat if it's a new normal. I mean, again, I go back, I hate to be a broken record, but what happened in 2018? Why did it work so well? Uh, I mean, that was a, you know extraordinary democratic year. Uh, and it was a year where Donald Trump had the same poll ratings he has now. Uh, the Democrats actually had less money than they did this year, but they picked up, what, 41 House seats. Uh, and, and it was almost all the Spanbergers and the Allrads, and and it was not. The well, squad. it was AOC, and it was Ilhan Omar. I mean, they they also they, won in their district. She too. she didn't pick up a seat; she kept a seat. Right, she retained a seat. I mean, but I'm she got. About, but in her mind, but again, you got to look at it the way she thinks about it. She thinks she got rid of a moderate Democrat because her district didn't like moderation. Her district was re was opposed to being moderate, right? She got rid of a longtime white Democrat in a district that is decidedly now minority. Do That's white right. Democrats have that. a, are, is there, are there, are we losing white Democrats? Are they completely going to the Republican Party? Is that a no. fair assessment or what's no, the, what's no, the issue there? No, as a matter of fact, I mean, if you look, what really carry this election, I mean, take your semi-neighboring state of Georgia. The black turnout was pretty good. Uh, you know, Stacey Abrams did a good job, but we exaggerate the effect that had on Biden carrying Georgia. Biden carried Georgia because he carried Gwinnett County. He carried Cobb County, the Atlanta suburbs, the predominantly white Atlanta suburbs, college-educated women. Same thing in Pennsylvania. The margin that Biden won by was the Montgomery, Bucks, Delaware, and Chester counties voted overwhelmingly. For Biden, they used to be the harder Republican country. These are are not these are are white. And it's men and women, but largely women. And uh, the divide now certainly race is a big divide in American politics. But another big divide is education. It's a huge divide. 
Didn't used to be. You know, I ran polls for 25 years, and you always want to go when you check your poll. You you know, you want to calibrate to make sure you're right on race and uh, geography and a couple other things. We never calibrated for education. You have to now. Is Biden up to the task to, uh, to I mean, he's been in the Senate or in government for 40 years. Uh, he has been known, certainly throughout the Obama administration, as the man who could go over to the Senate and get people to work on things that they might not have worked on with President Obama. Is he going to be able to do that when he's got problems on both his right and potentially on his left also? Well, he certainly is going to have to thread a needle. I'm, I'm, I'm not a great optimist about the ability to do that. Uh, I think to some extent the president-elect is nostalgic for a Senate that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and in many ways, it not only doesn't exist anymore, but if McConnell controls the, the calendar, he will decide what comes up or not. And I will tell you right now that if a Supreme Court justice were to retire in June, Mitch McConnell would sit on that for three and a half years. You think so, really? I do. I do. I think he's in the past. He hadn't paid any price for what he did with Merrick Garland, you know, for what he did with Amy Barrett. He's paid no price at all. You know, he's, you know, remained You don't in power. think that Joe Biden could go, I mean, it, certainly Joe Biden wouldn't be able to, uh, President Biden wouldn't be able to nominate a, a incredibly liberal justice, but you don't think that if Stephen Breyer were to leave that Joe Biden would be able to convince McConnell that there was a moderate type of jurist that he could put in that seat? I think it'd be a tough sell. I think it'd be a tough sell. Uh, Which is why I don't think that the Senate that Joe Biden was used to working with uh, as recently as 12 years ago is the same as today. Uh, McConnell cares about his caucus, uh, and his caucus is more right-wing than it was before. Sure, you have Collins and you have have Murkowski, but that's about all. I mean, I look at people like Rob Portman, a really smart, good guy. He is absolutely gone in the tank. He put his he 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 put his 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 public integrity in a blind trust for the last four years. What is he What is he thinking? Because he's up for re-election in two years. Does he think I, that I, this is going to help him? I think he thinks it would hurt him if he did. If he didn't, yeah, he thinks I that mean, he would lose I mean, losing Trump's support in Wisconsin would hurt him more in, in, than, in Ohio. In Ohio, yes. Oh, Rob Portman. A, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of yeah. Ron Johnson. That's well, the one who lost his mind. <laughs> He's, he's oh, just no, a nutbag. Okay. He's just crazy. <laughs> Ron Johnson is def- is up in two years. I don't think Rob Portman is. So yeah, he, I Rob think Portman. he is. As a matter of fact, and Rob Portman is a smart guy with a really you know distinguished public record. Uh, OMB director, uh, trade uh, representative, very close to the Bush family. Uh, you know, a constructive conservative senator, and he's just absolutely. I mean, you know, they nominated this woman for the Federal Reserve Board, Judy Shelton. She's not going to make it. But Rob Portman, who knows economics and knows this was an unqualified uh, nominee, voted for her. Uh, it's fear, Clay. It's just fear. Biden's put up some pretty unexciting to some folks, but certainly non-controversial for the most part, people for his cabinet thus far. Um, Janet Yellen at Treasury, uh Tony Blinken at state names Tony Blinken that I think most people didn't even know. And he hasn't, with the exception of one, perhaps, he's not really gotten much pushback at all publicly for any of the nominations he's had thus far. Is that a sign that he's 
trying to tread lightly, or is it a sign that Republicans just aren't interested in picking the fights yet? What do you do? You think he's going to have trouble with those top level folks that he's uh, nominated thus far? What normally happens is that a the opposition party picks one or two nominees to go after. Uh, mm-hmm. Either uh, you know uh, uh, party does it, or you know both parties do it. Uh, and so they're that, and then and you'll add a couple this time before he even. I mean, Senator Hawley and Senator Rubio and Senator Cotton put out a press release. I think within seconds after Tony Blinken was named, all they had to do with that press release was fill in the blanks, fill in the name. <laughs> uh, so you know, I think. Well, these some are all that, people running for president in twenty twenty four. It is. And I think some of that is that. Some of it is. I mean. Can anyone, is anybody going, any Republican going to look at me with a straight face and say, Janet Yellen is not qualified to be Secretary of the Treasury? That she doesn't read, she doesn't meet the lofty standards of Steve Mnuchin. I mean, is any Republican really going to look me in the eye and say that? So, so I think there will be some, he may lose one or two. Do you think he puts them up? Pretty good. When you're when you're sitting in the politics war room with James Carville, do you sit there and think, if I am if I am filling out this this cabinet, do you think he throws in some folks specifically who he knows will grab that type of ire? Um, are there sacrificial lambs that get put up there specifically? No. You don't think no. so? No, no. Lyndon Johnson said, once they beat you, you know, you never stop bleeding. Uh, not quite true, but 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 it's a loss, and you have to expend a lot of capital. Uh, and if he has a nominee that he has to spend a lot of capital on to get through fifty-one forty-nine or whatever, he he better be certain that this is someone that really is worth it. I, if I had been uh, Joe Biden, would not have nominated Neera Tandon to be OMB director, and I think she's a very talented woman. But you knew there was going to be a kind of confirmation fight. I'm not sure he can win it. And if he does win it, it will he will use a lot of chits. And I'm not sure it wouldn't have been better to tap her for something like domestic policy uh, chief. I mean, she's very, very, very smart, very talented. But it, I, I'm just not sure that's worth that fight. It's not a it's not a strategy to take attention away from somebody else. Then I mean, it, it would be no. very generous of someone like Neera Tandon to be willing to be that sacrificial lamb. Obviously, I know Neera Tandon. Let me tell you, that's not uh, what she's thinking right now. <laughs> okay, um, is is his bigger problem? Does is he going to have a bigger problem with Mitch McConnell? You think than he is with the the left wing of the party in yes. the House? Yes. Yes, there will be a problem with the left wing in the House, but, you know, there's no one who's better able to deal with that than Nancy Pelosi. Uh, she will go and she's got a very small, she's got a, probably a majority of five. And and just as a quick aside, uh, he cannot afford to appoint any, he being Joe Biden, any more House members to any, any position. Right. Because you can't lose those votes. And it's always about 60 days between someone leaving and having a special election. And I don't care how safe a district it is, you can't afford to lose those votes during those 60 days. So so I think Pelosi, it'll be very, very delicate. But my guess is she's going to win a couple, you know, 219 to 215 votes. Right. But if the squad is 10 people, 9 to 10 people uh, large. She, she's got to then- pick a couple off. And and with whatever strategies she uses right, for that. Right. right. Well, she got to pick a couple off without losing 
uh, you know, the Spanbergers and, uh, you know, some of the others. A few crazy, crazy, wild questions, just because you know this and I don't, and I'm curious. What, is there any chance, any attraction for someone like Pat Toomey to be offered a plum spot in the administration that would that he might take? I mean, do you think that's something that Biden's thinking through? Find one of these red state, one of these blue state um, senators, a Republican who has a Democrat governor, and and take Pat Toomey out and let the governor of, of Pennsylvania appoint the replacement? I, I think the Republicans would go ballistic and uh, they would bring pressure on Toomey not to do that, number one. Number two, I don't think Pat Toomey would fit in a Biden administration. Uh, he really wouldn't. There was a time there in, in two thousand. But if he's retiring anyway. Well, but I don't think he ideologically fits, philosophically fits, governmentally fits. I mean, he is a bona fide conservative. This is not going to be a conservative administration. They right. may have to lean more to the right than they'd like to on some things. But I, I remember 2009 or late 2008, Barack Obama seriously considered Judd Gregg uh, for Secretary of Commerce. Judd Gregg is a, is a very smart fellow, but he's very conservative. He would not have fit in the Obama administration. It would have, it, I mean, it works for, you know, some people. I mean, it can work for uh, uh, Ray LaHood, who was really a, a, a mainstream moderate uh, Republican. But, you know, I, I don't I don't think I don't think you, you're going to see that scenario. How careful does a Mitch McConnell have to be to to not put off someone like Susan Collins to the point that she goes independent and caucuses with the Dems? Well, if it's 5149, it's more of a threat than 5248, isn't it? Right, but do you uh, so, think she could do that? I mean, she just won six more years in a state where that's that's clearly trending blue. Assuming she wants to run again, arguably it might be even bluer then. Would she, I mean, and her, her fellow senator is also an independent, right? Angus King. Right. So is that a possibility? Could she say, she's I can't been do this a, anymore? She's been a pretty strong McConnell ally. When McConnell has needed her, she she's voted with him with one or two exceptions. And uh, so I don't, I don't see that happening at all. Uh, I really don't. Look, I mean, the whole Senate, I mean, part of the Senate is who controls the agenda, what, what you put in the floor, what you don't. And that's why the Georgia Senate races are so important. And uh, Joe Biden has more at stake in Georgia uh, in a month than, uh, you know, most everything else. Right. But if he if he were to win, if Democrats were to win one, Republicans win the other, that would put the House at 49, 51-49. And arguably someone like a Susan Collins would be in a pretty strong position to do something like that if she felt like Mitch McConnell was blocking too much. Um, too many things that she thought should go through, right? Well, fifty-one forty-nine certainly brings more pressure on Mitch McConnell. I, I consider it, I would be shocked if Susan Collins ever left caucus the way Senator Jim Jeffords did years ago. I think as Arlen Specter did. Inspector, I just think right. that's not going to happen. Uh, but certainly fifty-one forty-nine brings more pressure on him than fifty-two forty-eight. You think that's a chance uh, down although, there? Do you think the, I, the Democrats uh, very, have any chance in Georgia? Yes, I think they do, but I, I think I, I think it's going to be a unanimous decision one way or the other. Oh, really? Uh, it won't split? I think, I think it's a, a split verdict is very likely. Uh, the Democrats are running as a ticket. The Republicans are running as a ticket. And um, you, know, you don't think I, there I, are voters who would like to just say, you know what, I'm not partisan, so I'm going to vote for one in each party? I mean, it's very rare that they get a chance to send two people to the Senate at the same time. So, Well, there may well be, but I think, you know, 
To the extent there's some that want to do Warnock and Ossoff, there will be others. These are all small groups, too, uh, that would decide uh, that they're going to do, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, where I said Ossoff and Warnock, I meant Ossoff and Leffler. Leffler, others will do Warnock and Purdue. I think it's going to be a really small group. I mean, look, if it's a 50.2 to 49.8, yeah, it may be. But uh, if, it's, if it's not that, I, I suspect one party is going to elect two senators from Georgia on January 5th. Is it interesting to you that, I mean, Trump didn't say a thing about the Georgia Senate race until just this past week. Um, he doesn't he, care. Right. <laughs> he doesn't but, care. Do, but this this potential for a boycott, I think there are certain people on parlor, and I guess it's gotten quite a bit of steam, people who are saying, right, in Trump's name in the Senate races, don't show up, this is rigged. Do you think that's going to have any impact at all? I doubt it, but I don't know. I haven't been down there. And what I, you know, what this goes to, it's not so much whether they're going to be people who show up and write in Trump's name, but what happens in those, you know, he's going to Valdosta uh, on uh, on Saturday. What happens to those Trump voters in Valdosta? Uh, are they going to turn out? Uh, they turn out for Trump. And if he won the ballot January 5th, they turn out for him again. Will they turn out for David Perdue? I mean, some of them consider... Trump, you know, one of, as I said earlier, one of their own. I mean, he's one of our guys. He's a populist. Do they want to really turn out for this guy who engaged in thousands of stock trades while he was a senator? Well, uh, if Trump tells you know, them that he didn't, then maybe they will. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see who shows up to the rally for someone who clearly lost the state. And even those who turn up to the rally, how many will show up on January 5th will be yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, got a few quick fire questions for you. Um, okay. Quick fire round. Uh, should we be hearing more from Biden in the face of Trump's election claims? Has he stayed too quiet? No, he's handling it just right. Any, well, I told you quick fire, so I won't ask you to elaborate. Is it more important to hold the Trump administration accountable or to correct course swiftly? Well, for Biden, probably the latter. Uh, for the country overall, uh, the, the, the former has to be on the agenda. I mean, you can't have a lack of accountability. Um, will the Trumps continue to be a viable force in politics? Really interesting question. I think less so than most people believe today. You don't think he's going to try to start a news network or continue his rallies? He, you know, let me tell you something. If it comes to Donald Trump's news network versus Rupert Murdoch, I know where I'm betting. On Rupert Murdoch. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, are Democrats still the party of the blue-collar worker? Not not nearly enough. Uh, you know, they went and Joe Biden was the perfect blue-collar candidate, right? And if you look at a place like Pennsylvania, a state where he was born, uh, he did slightly better than Hillary Clinton in those <laughs> northeastern and those western uh, counties, but not much. He carried Pennsylvania again because of the college-educated suburbs. Is it too late to shield our country's workers <clears throat> from automation? Hmm. Boy, thank God this is a lightning round because you right. <laughs> will probably exhaust my knowledge in about 4.7 seconds. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's both inevitable, you know, automation is both inevitable and there's going to be a tremendous, uh, you know, a premium on figuring out how we work around it. But you know something? We always work around it. I remember when I graduated from high school many, many years ago, uh, we went over to a friend's house and his father was a very conservative businessman. 
And this was back in, in, in you know, I show my age now, 1960. And he said, let me tell you something. You kids have no future because labor unions are taking over America and America will never be the prosperous country it's been for the last, you know, 15 years. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so we, we'll, we'll figure out a, way, a, a workaround. We'll figure out, you know, a new way. I, 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 I'm not confident. I'm worried about the short term, but not the long term. Um, if the House and, in, and Senate end up split, who should we look to for compromise? Well, you see it already. You suspects. see the Mansions and the Collins, right? And, uh, you know, Mitt Romney will be involved in some of this. And, um, uh, you know, it's 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 going to be difficult. If, if they end up split, if Georgia goes with two Republicans, uh, it's going to be a real challenge for Joe Biden. Okay, so we'll pull out of this lightning round because I have when I when I opened the show, I talked a little bit about Capital Gang and about um, the days as as I was as I was prepping for today's episode, I was kind of looking back at shows like Capital Gang, shows like um, your show with uh, Robert Novak, um, and looking at how through the eighties and the nineties, and even a little bit into the early part of two thousands. There were a lot more shows on cable news that had people on both sides of the aisle talking about issues, arguing about them. I'm, I mean, you got into plenty of fights with Robert Novak on TV, but presumably, at least you convinced us, you didn't hate each other, and you were able to disagree oh, I'll go much. I'll go much further than that. I miss him, you know, all the time. Uh, so <clears throat> we didn't was, agree on anything. We didn't agree on politics, taxes, uh, politicians, uh Basketball, uh, the weather, <laughs> uh, but God, we had a great time together. And and, and I that learned, was, I learned from him. And he he may have had a hard time at minute, but he may have learned one or two things from me. A few things, but you could see that on TV that even right. when people disagreed, they were able to get along and laugh at the end of an episode and still be friends. And that happened throughout the 90s and early into the 2000s. Capital Gang and and Crossfire went away at the same time. Around about the same time, by the way, that Hannity and Combs were no longer together and it just became Hannity instead. And then CNN tried to bring back Crossfire in the mid-tens, in the mid-teens, and it didn't last but for 10 minutes. And I can't help but wonder if there's – that was sort of the period of time when people stopped being willing – to listen to folks get along, have we? And even you, you now do as we've talked about. You have a show, a, po- a podcast here um, with uh, with James Carville, who really needs no introduction either. Uh, Politics War Room with uh, James Carville and Al Hunt. If you if you're listening and you haven't listened to that, I really recommend it. But Thank even you. shows like that, or this one, where we had intended to do a show with people from both sides of the aisle, trying to have thoughtful discussion, even we had to kind of distance ourselves from that because we found that there were not many times when we could get a Republican and a Democrat to come on together one-on-one and have a discussion. Um, you you do your show with James, who's obviously shares a lot of, you disagree on some things, but you share a lot of the same viewpoints. Right. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we, why aren't people willing to sit down and talk to each other anymore? Well, I mean, I think I'm going to be parochial here. I think uh, that my wife's show, the PBS NewsHour, certainly does that. Right. Um, but I think that the commercial television— But not for ratings. Came, <laughs> no, that's right. And and I think for but what cable news has found is that basically you go and you play to your audience. 
And when you play to your audience, uh, you don't worry about uh, having the other side told. And now occasionally they'll they'll tell the other side, but I, it's a different. It's just a whole different uh, political, culture, cultural, and social landscape than it was twenty years ago. I mean, even on MSNBC and Fox, who who uh, I don't I think in in their to their credit, both of them have sort of slyly admitted that they are biased to the left or the right to some degree. But I've noticed that even on Fox, the the liberal contributors that they have either tend to be pretty moderate already or tend to be almost comical. And the conservative uh, commentators on MSNBC tend to be either pretty moderate and anti-Trump or they tend to be so ridiculous that they can't be taken seriously. I mean, there's just not a forum for that sort of thoughtful Cerebral almost. Capital Gang was pretty cerebral, I'd say, for that sort of discussion. It was certainly interesting and engaging. Cerebral, I don't know, but— Y'all were definitely smarter than everybody at home watching, I can tell you that. It was a lot of fun, I'll tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) But is it just—are we done with that? Is it over? Is it uh, just—should we just figure out how to live in our silos and and accept it? Or better yet, how the heck are we going to get along? Uh, I don't have a very good answer to that, Clay. I wish I did. <laughs> uh, I really, I wish. Don't I worry wish about I it. Nobody be, else has either. <laughs> I, no, I could wish at my advanced age, I could say I, I have a way, there's a way to turn this around. I, I will say this. If, if, if having Joe Biden as president doesn't do it, I don't know what the hell will. Right. Because if there's anybody, I mean, Joe Biden is a guy who, who spoke at Strom Thurmond's funeral. And got attacked from the left because of it, right? Yeah, that's right. But, you know, and is attacked from the right every day. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, if, if if he can't do it, then I don't know who can. Well, I've, I've having done this for t- almost 10 months now, I don't have the answer to that question. But I do think that part of the answer is that we have to want to. And I and I worry now the question becomes, how do we get people to want to get along? Because I don't think when you look on Twitter, when you look on when you look at the types of things that people get upset over, I can't help but and God, it makes me feel old to say it, but I can't help but find myself seeing people getting upset over things that I think, you know, that's just not a battle worth picking. Yeah. That's not something. And I think that there's a there's not necessarily a strong desire to want to get along. There's not a strong desire for Mitch McConnell to accept someone like Merrick Garland, who is far more far more moderate than someone like Sonia Sotomayor, who who Barack Obama had nominated two two spots previously. So I think we have to want it, and I'm not sure that I have found too many signs of people wanting it. No, I know. I think you're right. You know, I do think you're right. Um, we're going to make it, Clay. So, now, let me ask <laughs> Thank you. you. <laughs> I know we have to go. Let me ask you this. Where are you from in North Carolina? I'm from Raleigh. I lo- I, oh, I love this state. My son's living in Raleigh now. Oh, yeah? And, uh, and just now, loves does he work it. For, does he work for the government? Well, he, the campaign ended. Oh, the campaign. Uh, right, so we work so, on the campaign. So he's looking now. I don't want to advertise for him. But he is, he's looking now. But he just he went down there over the summer and just fell in love with the— he fell in love with Raleigh, and it's interesting because it was an unusual experience. With social distancing, he didn't have the kind of experience that he would normally have, particularly in a campaign. 
uh, of being with people all the time. But it just was, uh, it's a really, it's a good town. It's a really good town. It is. And we like to keep it a secret because it's, people keep coming here. <laughs> I won't say another <laughs> Don't word. Don't say anything. But, but I'll listen. say he's got a good boss. Roy Cooper is is one of the one of the best, in my opinion. He, yes. He, he does the policy correctly and he doesn't go for the flash and the argument. And, no, and I At times I he can be boring, but in a way that's what I like about him. He does the job. <laughs> yeah. No, he does the job. Hey, I have enjoyed this. And As I have I. I can't thank you enough. And, thank you. Uh, best of luck. And we'll figure out how we're going to make this world work soon. Clay. I, we really I, will. I, be, I have faith. I believe it. I hope you're right. Al Hunt, okay. thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye. If you don't already listen to Al's podcast with James Carville, it's a Politicon podcast, Politics War Room with James Carville and Al Hunt. You can catch that every single week in the same place that you find this podcast, too. If you like ours, please subscribe, like, comment, tell your friends about it, and do the same thing with Al's podcast. Again, Politics War Room with James Carville and Al Hunt. And we'll be back next week with another episode of How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along?